Welcome to MCS Pentecost, Pentecostal podcasts about theology and life in the Spirit, featuring both scholars and practitioners. MCS Pentecosts are produced by Masters College and Seminary in Ontario, Canada. I'm Peter Newman, Assistant Academic Dean of Masters Pentecostal Bible College. This is Van Johnson, Dean of Masters Pentecostal Seminary. This podcast is part two of two of a live presentation given by Dr. Peter Newman to a group of pastors at Royal View Pentecostal Church in London, Ontario, on February 21, 2013. The topic, Important Theological Issues in the Church Today. In this second part, he addresses topics of practical relevance concerning the Church and the end times, that is, ecclesiology and eschatology, followed by some audience Q&A. Ecclesiological issues have also been raised. The church is more than a spiritual service provider. There's a lot of rethinking about what the church is. If it's true that the gospel is broader than we've thought, then this has implications for what we think about the church. In a gospel that's too individualistic, the church then, what is the church? If the gospel is about me and my relationship to Jesus, then what is the church? We want people to join a church when they become a Christian. What is it supposed to do? What it must do is be a place where my personal relationship with Jesus can be nurtured. In other words, it becomes a spiritual service provider for my personal, private relationship with Jesus. So, it's right to encourage people to go to church because it is going to help us grow. But it does tacitly leave us with this idea that the church is a service provider for individual needs. And so then we begin to specialize programs to meet those special individual needs. But what if the church is more than this? One way of thinking about this differently is to see the church as a new humanity. So what if a better and, I would argue, more biblical way to look at things is that Jesus died not simply or primarily to save me, but to create a new humanity, the people of God, the body of Christ, the temple of the Spirit. What if Jesus died to do that, and the invitation is, and you can be part of that? Isn't this what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that Jesus died to create one new humanity? That would mean the gospel must include the message that when I become a disciple of Jesus, I'm now incorporated into the people of God. I think that needs to be said right at the outset. That's part of what it would mean to become a Christian. My new identity then is with Jesus and his people, his community. And there is no other Christian message. There's no such thing as private Christianity. So the church is becoming viewed not so much as a place that serves solely to enrich my personal private faith, but as the community to which I belong and the community that shapes my identity, since ultimately that is the aim of God's salvation plan, a new humanity. And it's a spirit-shaped, spirit-empowered humanity that will, as a people, best bear witness to God. All right, now if that's the case, it raises some other issues. If we're part of a new humanity, then we need to see ourselves as tangibly connected personally 
uh, and historically to the church that came before us. We need to view ourselves as not simply what God is doing today, but see ourselves as connected to a history of people that have come before us. So history becomes much more important. What was God, by the Holy Spirit, doing through and in the church through the centuries? Among believers just like us. What was he saying? That's not unimportant. It's incredibly important. And I think it also means we need to demonstrate we're more tangibly and visibly connected to other churches in the community and around the globe. That challenges our, challenges our individual autonomous spirituality, that the church exists for me, to serve me, but also is going to challenge pastors about congregational autonomy. That all that matters is our congregation, although we don't wish ill, of course, on any other congregation. I, you know, I heard in, in 2005, it was at uh, an A2 conference, Bill Heibel said almost this. He goes, for years, this is how I thought about the church. That the only congregation that mattered was mine. I didn't want anything bad, of course, to happen to the other churches in town, but I didn't really care. He wrote a lot of books before he came to that realization, though. Um, <laughs> if part of God's goal is salvation and in salvation is to create a new humanity, it raises another issue. Then how do we be missional in a relevant way? Well, also shaping believers into their identity, which we're realizing is really, really important. We need to understand ourselves as part of this new humanity. So, another issue that's under this ecclesiology category is mission in the identity and, uh, and uh, sorry, mission in the identity relevance tension. One of the ongoing challenges we know in the church is this pull towards preserving our identity. What is it that's unique about being a Christian and on the other hand, being relevant to the culture in which we find ourselves? There needs to be some sort of distinctiveness, and yet also we need to be speaking to the culture in which God has placed us. And both of these are aspects of the Christian mission. We ought to be missional. That's a very common message today. It means different things to different people. But theologically, I think being missional means being caught up in the mission of the Trinity in redemptive work. In other words, just as God through Jesus is on a mission, so are we by the Spirit's power. And one healthy implication of this emphasis on being missional has been that we have begun to focus more outward, more and more. You just see this more and more. Churches moving beyond their walls into the community, realizing that we have to have a presence there. Right? So we've opened our doors, we've got beyond the walls. And I think that's very, very important. Rather than insulating ourselves and isolating ourselves from the world. But along with this then, become, then comes this word, relevant. We need to be relevant to the surrounding culture. Be intelligible to those around us. And I think there's something very right about that. Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit enables the church to speak the language of the nations, which I think symbolically is a huge message for what the church is to be. They don't have to learn our language. The Spirit empowers us to speak those languages and affirms all languages and all cultures. How do we be relevant, though? Well, one approach to being relevant is through some degree of cultural accommodation. Uh, what I mean by this is we need to become more aware of culture around us and learn its language so that we can communicate more effectively. One way of doing this um, is to identify widespread felt needs and attempt to address these. And a seeker-sensitive approach 
has attempted to do that and been very effective in many ways and opening many doors. But it does tend to rely on business models and marketing techniques. techniques. And so I would see the seeker approach as more leaning toward that cultural accommodation side of things. I'll come to another option in just a second. There are some downsides to cultural accommodation. It can tend to make the gospel a commodity into a product. It raises questions about the word relevancy. Because when you say we need to be relevant, the next question should be, to whom? can't be relevant to all people all at the same time. So that opens an interesting door, the door of targeted marketing. You're going to be relevant to this group, to that group, right? We'll, we'll, be, we'll, we'll, we'll target this social uh, group of people or that group or that ethnicity or that type of thing. I mean, there's times and places for all of that except I really wrestle with that targeted marketing approach and putting that together with Acts chapter 2 where we see a vision of the church as mixed language, race, gender, and age. And so there is a danger that we become so shaped by culture that it's possible we get to the point of being indistinguishable from culture. In other words, pursuing relevance to that extent, what it might actually do is if we take it too far, we might actually become irrelevant because we're actually no different than anyone else around us. So that's one of the dangers of a cultural accommodation approach. Discipleship has also been an ongoing challenge in seeker model churches, as I've mentioned. Now, we can't ignore culture. We are missional people. We're called to be uh, witnesses in culture and celebrate that which is good in culture. But if God's goal is a new humanity, then mission needs to also be shaped by identity. Not simply by what culture demands or what people think they need. Because there is this biblical message as well that sometimes we think we need all sorts of stuff that God doesn't quite have the same perspective on that. So another approach is to be relevant through the concept of hospitality. And here people like James K.A. Smith, Canadian uh, guy, but he's now a philosophy teacher at Calvin College, and Mark Galley, uh, mentioned this approach of hospitality. James Smith says when he goes to France, he doesn't want the French to become American. That, that ruins the whole trip. But he does want them to be hospitable. That's what makes it enjoyable. And really what church is about, says Smith and others, is we're inviting people into a different culture. So there needs to be a distinct identity this approach sees the best Christian witness as being that which has a strong identity and out of that flows our mission. And so our mission includes the overflow of tangible love outside of the walls of the church into our neighborhoods and towns. The world needs to see us live out our identity in public and our communities, not in isolation. And it also means an atmosphere of welcoming hospitality in the activities and programs and worship of the church. But rather than accommodation, this approach is less likely to let culture dictate the identity and shape the church. Instead, theology, history, and the Bible play a much larger role in shaping the identity of Christians in that context. And theology is taught not simply through classes or seminars like this, but it's taught through worship which becomes much more intentional towards serving to shape the identities of the participants, even as we welcome others to join. Now, before you reject this approach, this hospitality approach, 
I think it's important to answer this question. Why is it that I can't order a large coffee at Starbucks? I, I have to learn a different language when I go there, right? You go in and you, you can't order a large, or is it, is it the, well, me, medium, the grande, right? Is that right? The tall grande. Why, why do I have to do that? Why can't they just be like, you know, Tim Hortons and there's a small, medium, large, extra? Why do I have to learn a different, and if you want a specialty drink, right, you have to bring a very spiritual person along with you to do the interpretation of tongues. Well, obviously, by making us learn a different language, they won't be very successful. Right? Nobody's going to go there into that store. It hasn't turned out that way, has it? When, when you enter into a Starbucks, you're actually entering into another little subculture in which people don't mind learning a little bit of a different language as long as there's hospitality, as long as, and here's another important word, as long as there's trust. When it comes to the church, we need to show hospitality. We need to show trust. Trust is only built through relationships. And relationship does not happen if we are isolated and insulated from our broader communities. We need to corporately and personally be involved in our communities. So let's not think that everything needs to be accommodated to culture and intelligible to the extreme. Of course, we need to speak common language to some degree. But let's welcome people into the experience of what it means to be the people of God. Last item. Go through this one quickly. Eschatological issues. The story of Jesus is not over yet. Eschatology is a theology of last things, and it's always been controversial, and it's generated all sorts of opinions. If you can remember far enough back, all the fun movies in the 1970s about being left behind with Larry Norman spookily singing, you know, uh, about that terrorizing young children that, who have been left behind by the, thinking, you know, they're going to be left behind by the rapture. Uh, in the 90s, there was a little bit of a resurgence of that in the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye. Robert Weber argues that pragmatic evangelicalism has basically uh, ignored eschatology. It's not important, it's not practical, it's not relevant. And I uh, didn't want to get into the debates about rapture theories and all the rest of that. And that's probably why, even in our own churches, we don't talk about this. We don't talk about eschatology very much. I'm probably generalizing, but I've taught this cor course on eschatology for a number of years, and, I, and we ask students the question, are you hearing this in their churches? And by and large, they are not. Now, the reason we don't talk about it could be many reasons. I think maybe one of them is, is we just think there's too many theories on millennium and timing of the rapture and tribulation, and we don't know even how to talk about these things with confidence. There's too many options. And furthermore, who cares? Like, what's the relevance to daily life? It makes no difference. You know, pre, mid, post? How does that make a difference in the middle of my life now? That might be one reason we don't talk about it. Maybe another reason we don't talk about it is that our culture isn't too concerned whether Jesus returns or not. Now, this is a significant problem, our ignoring of eschatology, not because I'm really trying to promote a particular rapture theory here, uh, but because it's part of the gospel, it's part of Jesus' story. See, see, um, Part of Jesus' story is that he's coming back again to, to wrap things up. So we can't actually talk about the whole gospel without talking about the way God is going to wrap things up, where God is taking things. See, God, eschatology to me simply means this. God has a plan. It's being worked out through the life of Jesus, and he is going to wrap things up and make all things new. And it includes not just the church and individual Christians, but it, it includes all of creation. There is an ultimate hope. 
And the New Testament church thought this was pretty important as well because they talk about it over and over and over. Their hope is going to be fulfilled through Jesus. One day he's going to return. And when he did, things would be way different. Everything that's wrong in the world would be made right. There would be a new creation. We'd be resurrected. And that's why, that's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians can speak of there being one hope of all Christians. And we all have our other personal hopes, right? We hope that we have a nice lunch today. I hope that you know, we have more serious hopes in life. I hope my family's healthy, these types of things. No, but, the, but Paul says, underneath all of those hopes that we have, and they're good, is one hope that all crea- uh, Christians hold. Jürgen Moltmann, theologian in Germany, calls this resurrection hope, and he says it trivializes all of our other hopes. This one hope is the reason why early Christians could give their lives and, and die for Christ. Because they knew that even if their personal hopes were not fulfilled in life, they were still going to be part of the fulfillment of that one hope. Their hope was in the resurrection. So for the early church, eschatology was not a curiosity. It it wasn't something obscure for people who were going to get caught up in particular dispensational theories and obscure Bible texts and Daniel. Rather, eschatology was central to their faith. It shaped their spirituality day to day. Because God's hopes and God's hopes for the world shape their own life goals and values, and so it must be with us today. In other words, God's future needs to shape the trajectory of our own life personally and our church's goals and values today. If we don't know where God is taking things, how do we know what we're supposed to be doing? A really good book on this is N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, where he argues exactly this. He starts with, where's God taking things? And out of that, then what's the mission of the church? So eschatology is crucial to Christian identity and formation. Part of eschatology in the New Testament is it tells us that through the Spirit we're already experiencing in some ways the future now. Uh, We're not there yet. There's lots of things that are not fixed. But we're experiencing the future in part now. And one day we're going to experience it fully. Eschatology tells us something else that might challenge us. The return of Christ tells us that Jesus is going to return tells us that God is not satisfied with the way things are. And I think that's really important. In other words, God himself wants things to be radically different so much that Jesus is going to return. Not only is he going to return, but Jesus needs to return. So our lives need to be shaped and framed by that hope now. Right? One day Jesus is going to return. In some ways, in fact, we can already celebrate the work of the Spirit among us today. But at the same time as we have that hope, there also needs to be a deep, godly dissatisfaction with the way things are now in our own lives, in the world. In other words, there needs to be a little bit of being upset. And that's the only way I think that Christians in the New Testament have sort of had this phrase, return quickly, Lord Jesus. That's where that comes from, that dissatisfaction. If we don't have God's hope as our trajectory, then what will happen is other cultural goals and more trivial hopes will simply serve to frame our lives. And I suspect this is, in fact, what's going on with many of the people in our congregations. If we only talk about penultimate things, here's some ways to help your life to overcome this or do that. And those are all good things. I'm not saying don't talk about those things. But if we don't put it in a broader, ultimate trajectory, then what will happen is... The trajectory will be things like retirement, uh, making sure my children are being provided for. Those are all good things. 
But it's, it's, it's hardly the robust theology and passion will lead to the robust theology and passion that the early Christians had, a longing for the whole world, not just my life to be different, but all things to be made new. So I'm not advocating the need for more tribulation charts. Van Johnson does that. He'll give you all sorts of colored charts. And... No, I'm kidding. But ignoring the Bible emphasis on God's goals for the future will mean ado adopting alternative frameworks for living. And I think we need to know that the story of Jesus includes his return. Okay, just to wrap it up really quickly, practical ways forward and some resources. They're on your handout there, some books and some blogs and uh, some places you can go. The blizzard of theological issues can be a little bit overwhelming, and I realize that, and it's going to get a little bit more overwhelming when Van's finished his, position, his, uh, his talk. What's a pastor to do? What are we supposed to do in the Bible college, in the pastorate, in our neighborhoods? Well, we can ignore these things, but remember, they're really central to what we say we are, so I don't know if we can do that. We can become defensive, and we can panic, and sort of circle the wagons, and say, we're not going to pay attention to that stuff. We're just going to do the same as we've always done. I don't think we should do that. I don't think Pentecostals need to do that. We've always been... Uh, uh, courageous with the power of the Spirit. And furthermore, we've had some doctrines of our own develop in the last hundred years or so, right? Doctrine of Spirit baptism, initial evidence, at least in that particular way it's been framed. So we shouldn't be uh, afraid of at least exploring some ideas. Doesn't mean we have to accept them, but explore them. I think we need to engage these ideas, but I don't think we should do it alone. I think we need to do it together. I think we need to have friends. I think we need to appreciate credential holder, other credential holders especially, and realize that we are not building the body of Christ is not about something we do alone. Uh, trying to figure out these things is not something we do alone. It's something we do together. Something to do with other pastors. It's something we do as pastors and people in the Bible college talk together and, and just inform each other and say, what do we do about this? I don't know. I'm just raising the issues. I mean, there's some ideas I have, but boy, there's, I believe the Holy Spirit speaks through all of us. There needs to be a growing appreciation that we're not alone in this. And furthermore, that really our spirituality can be so enhanced by just sharing with one another and these types of things, or maybe in a Starbucks or Tim Hortons talking about some of these things with each other and saying, how are things going in your church? What should we do? You know, how do we work these things out? So we really do need each other. I so appreciate the fact that, that Gary Fess has arranged this today and brought us together to do this, because I really think we need to be doing this more and more. Appreciate the districts doing this last November. There's just such a health in, in our fellowship right now. There really is. That you actually want to be with each other. I don't know, maybe you're stuck at a table with someone you don't like. No. I, I think you actually want to be there. And, and uh, that, that is a real great expression of the health that we have right now. Let's take advantage of it. Let's nurture it. Let's cultivate it. Because I really think that is a great witness to what the church should be. And it will really help us spiritually. I mentioned some of these resources already. So um, take a look at it. One of them that you may want to... I didn't mention this one. Uh, one of our adjunct faculty, he was a student of mine, I think at one point, not too long ago, Adam Stewart, some of you might know him, and uh, he edited this book, Handbook of Pentecostal Christianity, a uh, really cool little book, about 50 articles on different aspects of, of Pentecostalism, just a good resource to keep on the shelf, and so I'd just like to recommend that one for you, but among the other ones here, N.T. Wright and Weber and... Uh, Scott McKnight is good. Some of the blogs are great. Regent uh, College out in British Columbia has all sorts of, of courses available uh, that you can listen to in your car. Relevant biblical and theological topics. 
Uh, one thing we, we're not addressing here today is ethical issues, but all sorts of good material out there. Okay, I'm going to stop. Um, we'll take a few minutes here, done a little bit more longer than I wanted to, but we'll take a few minutes. And at this point, I think what we're going to do is just take some clarification questions. And because uh, and, later on, we're going to have more time to discuss some, uh, some questions. Do you want to use the microphone? Okay. All right, so just any questions of clarification or thought? Yes. Um, yeah, hi. Um, I'm, I'm with you there on the economic, how the free market economy has influenced how we look at our faith and a consumeristic kind of mentality. But from a very young age, we're born and bred into a free market economy, yeah. right? Yep. Where it's just deeply ingrained in us. So we can talk about, ideologically speaking, that you know we need to be careful about this when the systems and structures that we operate in are, are structured around a free market economy yes. too, right? So my question is, how do we break and not pander to and not enable a consumeristic free market economy and approach to Jesus? Because I really want to be able to do that, but it seems like the way our services are set up, the way our programs are set up, it actually panders to it and enables it. Yeah, that, that is a really, that's a really good question. These are some of the things that I'm wrestling with. Even as I'm saying some of this, you know, I'm realizing the moment we walk into any setting, we're, we're so immersed into this culturally that we just expect there's going to be some exchange of goods go on here, right? I'm going to give you this, some money or my time or something, and you're going to give me that. Well, we're not really selling a product in the church. We're, we're inviting people into a different community. So there's got to be some creative ways around this. And this is where I think talking about these things are going to become really important. I think one, one thing is helpful to me is at least being aware that we're in that type of culture where this is going to be so natural for people. So we can't just dispose of all of that language right away. Otherwise, people won't know what we're talking about. They won't get that. But we can nurture along to a place where we're trying to form into a different identity. Uh, I mentioned Weber's book. You know, so there's really practical stuff in this book because he actually goes through a lot of this showing here's how different churches are actually modeling this type of thing. That's why I think it's a really good resource for that. So you may want to pick it up. I appreciate at the end of every chapter here, almost every chapter, he gives a little chart. So for example, he'll talk about education in the church or art in the church. And then he'll give a little chart. How, are tradition, how did traditional evangelicals deal with this? How did pragmatic evangelicals deal with this? And how are younger, let's say emergent or whatever, evangelicals deal, dealing with this? So there's, that, I think, is a wealth of information. So that's a probably unsatisfying but short answer to this. But I really appreciate you bringing that up because, uh, yeah, ideology, right, on the one hand. Um, but, but how does this practically work itself out? I just think we need to realize that the culture in which we're in and say, where is God taking us? Okay, now what do we do with this? And I think there are ways that will transform and shape us, but it's not an overnight process. And uh, I probably will be little at a time in inviting people in and hospitable and inviting them into who we are, what we do, uh, in that type of way. But yeah, Weber's a great resource for that. Others? Yes? Yes. It's kind of yes to both. Yes. I'm saying uh, uh, ecclesiology, just in the sense, or not eschatology, sorry, like in teaching multiple, leading your people through multiple views and some of the things that may not fully be set in stone. Yeah. Okay. So, question is just for the microphone. Say, uh, question is, um, how do we teach? I mean, we have several different views of the atonement. We've just mentioned two of them today, and and other ecclesiology issues. How do we do that with our people? Well. 
again, I think the, this atmosphere is great for talking through some of this stuff, but I, I think our people are able to handle some of this teaching when we outline it and say, look, here's some, like, penal substitutionary theory, theory has lots of scriptural support for it. I mean, it's been getting some negative reviews, but often due to misunderstandings of what that theory is actually saying. And, and so what, I think it's fair to talk to our people about those types of things and lead them through studies carefully and say, well, here's some real, here's, here's what this is all about, and here's why Christians sort of develop this type of theory, and, and uh, now here's another option. But there's actually truth in both of these things, Christus Victor and penal substitutionary theory, and I don't necessarily think you need to jettison one in favor of the other. The argument really is among evangelicals is, well, which one gets center stage, right? Which one is most important? Um, and the New Testament um, I mean, I want to lean towards sort of a penal substitution theory, but, you know, unfortunately, Paul doesn't say, and here is the you know, one, or Luke doesn't say, and here's the one you need to do. It just, there's different models that have been there, and, and it's Christians grappling and wrestling with scriptural images to do this. But I, I think that people are able to handle that if we do so clearly and, and carefully and say, here's some real strengths to this and why we need to hold on to this, right? Penal substitution. We need to have a relationship with Jesus. It's broken. But also, we're, we're invited now to be part of God's people who, that, that are attempting to work out the, uh, what God is doing in this world. So, you know, and Jesus can bring victory in these things. Healing. Pentecostals are open to that. Jesus can heal. Victory over the devil. All sorts of things. Thank you so much. Um, we'll take a break for, what, Van, about 15 minutes? We hope you've enjoyed this episode of MCS Pentecast, podcast produced by Master's College and Seminary. MCS Pentecasts are available online at mcs.edu and also through iTunes Podcasts. Master's College and Seminary offers biblical, theological, and practical courses from a Pentecostal perspective at both undergrad and graduate levels. For more information on graduate courses offered through the seminary in Toronto, Canada, visit mpseminary.com. For undergrad courses at Master's College in Peterborough, please visit mcs.edu.